Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, takes you on a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. It is Wednesday, April 17th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. We will be talking about how to support women of color at Christian conferences and in Christian institutions. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host, Caleb Lindgren, our theology editor. Hi there. Pleasure to be back again. I know. I think people are going to get a lot of you this month, which is definitely not a bad thing. I'm excited about it. Yeah. I love being on the podcast. It's great. Well, that's terrific. So we actually have two guests today. I don't know if you want to introduce both of them and tell us a little bit about what they do. Sure. Yeah. I'm really excited to have both of these guests. We have uh, Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson who is an author. Um, Her most recent book is A Sojourner's Truth, Choosing Freedom and Courage in a Divided World, published by IVP. It's new out, so go and get that. Um, She's also the visionary founder of Leadership Links Incorporated and co-founder of Call and Response Ministries. Natasha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, great to talk with you. Can't wait. Also uh, on the show today, we have Kathy Kong. She is also an author with IVP. Um, Her most recent book is Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. She's a writer, speaker, and a yoga teacher. Kathy, hi. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. We are glad to have you on here. So I'm going to give everyone a little bit of background about why you guys are joining us today. Um, There was some recent stuff in the news, so we'll get into that, and then we'll kind of just bombard you with questions and really draw out all the wisdom that I know you guys are going to bring to this conversation. So several weeks ago, theologian Akemeni Uwan was interviewed on stage at the Sparrow Conference for Women. Uwan, who is a Nigerian-American woman who frequently speaks out against racism and white supremacy, addressed similar topics in her remarks. So I'm just going to read some of the stuff that she said in this Q&A. She said, We have not to only just come to these conferences, but then apply what you are learning and hearing. If what I'm saying is making you uncomfortable, you have to ask yourself why. Race is an idol. Whiteness is an idol. There are benefits conferred to that, but our idols mean to kill us, which means whiteness will kill white people too. In a piece by Dee Dee Rowe at The Witness, a Black Christian collective, Dee Dee recounts and analyzes the conference, and she noted that over the course of Uwan's remarks, some attendees walked out. In the aftermath of the conference, Uwan's images and quotes were not utilized by the conference on its social media feed in contrast to those of other speakers. A video of her remarks that had been uploaded to YouTube was also taken down at the request of the Sparrow Conference. And Uwan also told Religion News Service that she had to hire an attorney to force Sparrow women to send her photos and video of the interview. The organization later released a statement. It said, We publicly apologize to both the Kemeni Uwan and the conference participants for not handling such a complex subject with more care and therefore putting everyone involved in such a difficult place. 
So I'm also going to bring up something that also happened to Kathy a couple months ago. So Kathy was actually speaking at or preaching at chapel at Baylor University earlier this year. And as she recounted on her blog and the student newspaper at Baylor also reported, she included an anecdote that mentioned an 11-year-old boy who was arrested after not standing near the Pledge of Allegiance. In the middle of her talk, a Baylor student stood up and said, that's not what happened. He was making terrorist threats to his teacher. So I'm going to read what Kathy wrote on her blog here. She said, in a split second, I had to decide if I would respond to the man. I did not. I paused, caught myself, and went on. Decide if I felt safe enough to stay on stage or trust the school would remove me from stage if someone else felt like I was in danger. I stayed but learned someone had moved quickly to get me just in case. So this week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to broaden the conversation beyond the particularities of these two incidences that we're going to provide links in the show notes to give you more background about them if you want to read more about them. And we want to discuss how Christian conferences and institutions can do a better job supporting the women of color they invite to address their audiences. All right. So, Caleb, you probably read some of this news as it was playing out. And I just want to do a gut check for both of us about kind of your initial reactions to these particular stories. Yeah, whew, uh, this is a tough one. I think I didn't hear about what happened to Kathy until we heard what happened to Kemeny, and I think it's sort of all of those things sort of came together in a larger conversation. But my initial reaction was, I guess, like, man, we still have such a long way to go. And I probably would have made some of the same mistakes without realizing it. And so it was kind of a gut check is a good word for it because I was like, boy, I guess the other thing that really struck me was, I guess the at least regarding the Sparrow thing was like, boy, they really put on a really good face that given the way that they present themselves, I was surprised that they mishandled that the way that they did. And that sort of indicated that was one of the reasons why I was like sort of thinking about like, boy, I probably would have made some of those same mistakes because I think there's a well-meaningness that masks a lot of like mistaken assumptions. And I think unless you're in a situation, it's really hard to see the sort of dangers that I think were felt in these scenarios in a way that um, even as a conference organizer with so many different like details on your mind, it might not occur to you. And even if it does, there might be a lot of other things that sort of uh, other voices in your head to consider. And so I was like, boy, this is just so complex. And I just do not see most of the different sides of this. So I was really curious to have this conversation because I want to know more. Yeah, my gut check, I would say, was um, when I was kind of watching the Sparrow event play out in real time was I, I think I was most struck by just how far this conference seemed to kind of distance itself. I mean, I, it was like shocking to me, I guess, that they would like not include someone's images or quotes of like one of their speakers. Yeah, that was a surprise. Especially after like you know what the speaker is going to say. I guess that what the thing is about this um, is that like both Akemeni and Kathy have, <laughs> they're on social media, they write blogs, they're on podcasts, like you know what they're going to be talking about and saying. And so there seemed to be this sense that both of these institutions were a little bit caught off guard or not prepared for that. And I'm like, wait, what? Like these people, it's not like some sort of surprise about what's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. um, and how are you kind of like trying to help 
the audience be the best audience it can be and not <laughs> walk out. And and then, especially in the case of Sparrow, to watch them like then distance themselves from, again, someone who is not saying things that are very dissimilar from what is already on their podcast that they do. Mm-hmm. So, Kathy, I know it's probably interesting to have us talk about you in third person. Hi, I know you're there. <laughs> um, and Natasha, I'm just curious, you know, I'm sure you guys get speaking requests and conference requests frequently. And I'm wondering, what is the first type of research that you're doing when you're hearing when an institution is making a request of you? What's going through your head? Oh, goodness. Well, I actually have a form that I send to the inviting party or whoever's been charged to contact me. And it asks questions around attendance, uh, leadership, diversity. It asks around fees, around expectations, what they're expecting. Are they familiar with me and my work? And I give them some information as well, some links to my social media, just in case the poor person who has to send the email is not familiar <laughs> or isn't in uh, isn't part of the deciding uh, decision makers. So sometimes that happens as well. So it's a back and forth. But then once the invitation comes in, I'm looking up. I'm going on their website. I'm looking at who are making the who are the decision makers. Who have they invited in the past? Do I know any of those people so that I can contact them? I ask about the purpose of the gathering or the conference or the talk. And I do specifically ask, are you familiar with my work? Because as you mentioned, Morgan, I'm on social media, so it should not be a surprise at all that I'm referencing current events, that I'm watching headlines, that I'm talking about racism, I'm calling out white supremacy. It it shouldn't be a surprise. Natasha, you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, similar to what Kathy, uh, Kathy said, I, I have a speaker form on my website, um, NatashaSRobinson.com. And so whenever someone tries to reach out to me for speaking, and they do that, right? They'll send an email, they'll, they'll send it on social media. I'm like, you know, go to the form because I don't answer emails for, for people I don't know um, in, in that regard. Um, I'm not going to respond on social media because what I found early in, in my career is that I can invest so much time having conversations and chitter chatter back and forth and never get a contract. And it ends up being a waste of my time. And my first thing is to go to the form, do the form. And the beautiful thing about having a form on my website is you can find all of my other stuff there on the website materials there. There are all my writing um, stuff is there. A link to my blog is there. Um, you can download a press kit there to read all about my background bio. So you can do um, all of that. And, and I think it's important to say here that the responsibility is on the organizer or the organization to vet me, right? And to decide if they, if they want me. That's their responsibility. My responsibility as a speaker is to decide whether I want to partner with them or not. Right. And so that's something I have to decide. And so in the same way that Kathy is asking those questions about size and diversity and how did you hear about me? Um, all those things. If someone referred them, you know, it's important to know. Um, obviously, there are some practical things that go through that as well. Um, both Kathy and I are not just minority. Uh, or I hate to say minority, ethnic, um, you know, um, different than the dominant group, you know, but we're also women and, and mothers. And so there's a practical logistical side of this that we have to take into consideration 
and the plan around our families and our husbands and our other work. And this is not, you know, my primary work. And so I, I have to take those things into consideration too. And so that, that's how I kind of prayerfully discern whether or not this is something I say yes or no to and what the conditions might be. I, I wonder, um, related to that, you guys talked about um, having a, a form um, and um, it's sort of, it's probably a learned process where you're like, I need to develop a system to make this work. Were there particular situations or just a series of different things where you're like, I need, I need a, a way to sort of like um, develop a, a sort of a vetting system of my own to make sure that this is efficient. Um, were there particular things that like key that? Did somebody recommend, Hey, you might consider having a form. Well, I think, you know, we, we talk and, and Kathy and I have been doing this for a while. And so we research, it's like any other thing we research and we learn and we get better. Um, and so I, I referenced it before just in restating, it's one of those things where um, you can go back and forth with people a lot of times and, and waste a lot of time and never get a contract. And I don't have that time to waste. And so my form, getting a form from you, it lets me know, do you have a budget for this? Afford it, right? Because if you don't have a budget for it and we're not friends, then this is not even something I can really consider. It's something like that, you know, it kind of weeds out like, or is this something you just like as an idea of having me? Or are you serious about what it will require for you to bring me um, to your event? And so that's what the form does for me. And then followed by the form, there's a contract. And so normally, like, I don't let people use my image or likeness or, or name or announce anything publicly until I get a contract. Now, sometimes the organizations have their own contracts, which is fine. Um, and I will read over that and see if that meets what I would consider like my bare minimum requirements. But if they don't, then I have a contract ready to go. Yeah, I think for me, it was similar realizing uh, that I didn't have honestly a clue how this business worked. And I think that's one thing for listeners to understand is that we can talk about these being Christian events, but it's also a business. So Sparrow Conference, that's a business because at the end of the day, that conference does not want to lose thousands of dollars. So this isn't about some local church doing a one-time small event, calling in the local moms for a mom's event. And even those events have people who are planning, there's a budget, there's an estimated number of people that they're hoping for. So I think for me, it was definitely learning that what I thought was part of ministry was also learning the business side of this and having mentors who had been doing this long before I did. And so I had one of those mentors who just said, no, Kathy, you cannot do this retreat for $500. You need to have a fee. And I looked at him and went, what is that? What do you mean by that? That sounds awful. We don't do that in church ministry settings. And he looked at me, an older white man, and he said, oh, yes, we do. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds very similar to my brother, who is a uh, composer, and he's mm. had to figure out his fee structure in the same way because he does a lot of writing for churches um, and um, arranging things for churches, and he's all consistently frustrated by the fact that uh, there are very few people that understand what you're talking about. That there is a business side of this that needs to be reckoned with, and it happens on both sides in a way that's very interesting. And that was something I was unaware of. So thank you for saying that. 
All right. So I, I'm curious, guys, if you can talk about things that conference organizers can do that immediately help to gain your trust and to let you know that your voice is going to be valued when you step onto campus or enter the conference. My goodness, they can value my time by telling me right up front what their budget is, what their expectations are, what their standard hosting procedure is. I mean, it doesn't take that much energy to be upfront and honest about what they are able to do and provide, in part because this is a job. And the assumption is that you are bringing in people who have an, a skill set and an expertise and a viewpoint that you want your audience, regardless if it's college students or conference attendees or a church, that you want them to be exposed to and learn from. And so in that, what is it that the inviting organization or institution is looking for. And it is also very helpful to have organizations and institutions that understand that for me, for us as women of color, that is one of the things that I'm looking for. That if you're inviting me to talk about leadership, if you're asking me to talk about racism in the church, what are the ways in which you've already prepared your audience to hear this message? What are the things, you know, what are the books that you've had them read? Who are the other speakers who have come in? What was the reception like for them? What is the follow-up that you have planned for, a, for the event that you are inviting me to? That is one of the questions that I ask. So that would be wonderful. And usually those are not the things organizers are necessarily thinking about? I think it's important for, you know, the question is about value. I don't question whether the value is there. I question whether people understand how to communicate that value in their actions. So one of the things that people will lead with for any number of, of these things and conversations that we have about diversity, you know, like everyone wants to talk about diversity. Everyone needs diversity. Sometimes people don't know why, right? So when I get an email and say, we want diversity, like, like no kidding, I understand that. And the same way I get an email and say, oh, we value you. That's great. I value myself. And so it's one of those things where we said, okay, what does that value look like in this space, right? And so for me, as a woman of color at my age, like the value means paying me fairly. Some things we've learned having done this for a few years is that it is a business. And so when you look at a resume, right, you download my press kit on my website, you look at a resume and look at a bio and what someone has done. And I want you to then say, if this was a white man, what would I pay him? That's what would communicate value. And it's not just about pay, but I think the pay is important because we have an inequity of pay for women all across the board in just about every field. And I always believe that in matters of injustice, the church should be better, right? The church should be better. And so one thing we should be intentionally thinking about is are we paying people fairly? I think that's important to consider for women of color to say, okay, well, if our budget doesn't allow us to pay Kathy, you know, the, what she's worth for some of her expertise and her experience, then what are some ways that we can offset that? Right. So then you start saying, OK, well, is there a, a sponsor that will be willing to cover her? 
Is there a way that we can sell tickets? Sometimes people want to have a free event. Well, maybe the thing is to sell tickets. Another thing would be, oh, well, maybe I can get with her publisher or someone to see if we can buy her book. You know, have 30 people or 50 people or 100 people there. And, you know, normally you go to these conferences, they give away gift bags, right? Right? Why not buy 100 of her books and fill them up with a gift bag? So now you've given her whatever fee you could could have given her, but you've already also gotten her book out there and her book is now able to influence wherever these 100 or 50 people are going. And so I think people need to be more intentional and more thoughtful and um, mindful of how they are asking women of color to come to the table. Yeah, that's helpful. I like the the practicality of that. I think a lot of these discussions sort of focus on ideas and it's the practicality that I think gets lost for me, at least I kind of get caught in the idea space, but I'm also a theologian. So it's sort of my fault, I guess. But, um, uh, I wanted to sort of turn that question around, um, that we were just talking about and we were talking about what are the ways that they can uh, make you feel valued and what are ways that like things that you would definitely not do that like are not communicating that, that maybe sometimes conference conference organizers try to do but that don't really work or aren't quite enough. I want to be clear that I'm not speaking for all black women. I'm not speaking for all women of color. I'm just speaking from Natasha's experience. The idea that, oh, this is going to help your platform. Oh, Lord. That's that's the thing. And and for me, when I started writing for publication, uh, and that was in 2010, so I'm almost a decade into this, and platform doesn't pay my bills. And so... I mean, it's great. And and furthermore, I'm not all that interested in being a public Christian. I mean, some people, they thrive on that and that's what they want. That's not what I want. For me, you know, my ministry is at home with my family. My ministry is in my nonprofit where I'm I'm mentoring young girls. My ministry is to my local church. My ministry is to, you know, some other things I'm building and uh, the relationships I have. And the people that I'm present with here. And so whenever I go out to be with you, then I have to consider what I'm not getting done at home. And I also have to consider, is the money that you're giving me out there, is that going to be a good investment for what I'm missing for the, what I'm doing here at home for free? And so if those things aren't aligning, then it, it's not really, it's not beneficial for me to say yes to you. Because if I say yes to you, then I'm saying no to something else. I would agree with that. And, you know, same with myself. I'm not speaking for all Asian American women. I would say that what's helpful is the idea of hospitality Mm. and what it means to host someone and how that looks different in different contexts and cross-culturally for men, for women, all of that. But that an organization, an institution would do some research and find out what does hospitality and hosting look like? Because yes, not every organization can afford necessarily the cash fee, but can come up with other creative ways to support as well as let us know that we are welcome. And one of the things that I had written about in relationship to the Baylor incident And again, when I wrote about that, I did not write about the university and that specific incident alone. It was really processing years, more than a decade of doing this kind of public work, is that traveling alone as a woman of color has changed dramatically in the last few years. Never mind the fact that 
getting on a plane is really gross and disgusting. And, um, and airlines are, it's just, it's not fun. It's not glamorous, but then to travel alone, doing the type of work that we do in the bodies we are in Mm -hmm. is a different risk than it is for your average white male speaker or even your average white female speaker. Mm -hmm. And for me, that experience at Baylor crystallized something that I had been thinking about for a long time, but had only had two instances in the last few years where I literally had a moment of concern for my physical safety. And because I was traveling alone, and for years I have put on my speaker request form not only about budget and fee, but whether or not the budget could include an extra plane ticket for someone to travel with me. And I think that's part of the hosting or hospitality is that too often there is no one on the other end in a city I have never been in. Oftentimes cities that are not necessarily safe or welcoming (laughs) to women of color. Is there someone who will be meeting me or at least communicate, I need to catch an Uber and I can check into my hotel right away and someone will pick you up from the hotel to take you to the venue. I think those are the ways in which uh, an organization, institution can communicate hospitality, understanding that I am entering into a space that is not my own. And so just like I would expect to be greeted at the door or told where to meet someone at a church, like here's the welcome booth right in front, or there's a greeter at the front door. It's helpful to know when I enter into this space that is new to me and I don't necessarily have someone there at the conference that I know and trust to at least say, here's someone who's going to know your schedule, know where you're supposed to be, know that you're not there and follow up and make sure you get where you need to be. I think those are some really easy ways in which a conference or a school institution can make sure people feel welcome. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline, a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. I talked to author Skip Heitzig, What do you hope that readers will get out of this book that they're not getting out of other books? Well, I hope that it'll serve the reader for a season. Just give me a little season in your devotional life to follow this thread. I don't want you just to be informed of God's rescue operation. I want you to be inspired by it and that they'll use that as a platform to worship God, maybe in a new dimension and serve him. It should make my outlook toward other people different. You know, maybe they're having difficulty with other Christians in their church or home group or family, but to look at them as blood-bought believers, it's like, wait a minute, God did all that for them, not just for me. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, 
connecting Dinah and the woman at the well welcomes experts like doctors Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I'm assuming that both of you guys have been brought into um, events where you're going to be kind of in a, be in a place where you're going to be challenging the audience's um, beliefs or convictions in a particular way, which also obviously adds another dynamic to everything that's going on here. I'm I'm wondering what are the ways that you've found um, institutions and conferences best support you in terms of um, being from being on the stage or talking with their audience members ahead of time. I know Kathy that you mentioned stuff about like reading books or so forth. I mean, kind of getting a better sense of like landscaping who the audience is. Um, and surely that kind of gives you at least a heads up, but are there things that, you know, the MC can say that can kind of, I don't know what the best word is, put you in the best place to succeed and to be heard. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is helping uh, the audience know why they have trusted us, right? So the MC is kind of the face of the event. I need or would appreciate the event, the face of the event, communicating their backing for me and their knowledge and trust in me and maybe even communicating to the audience a way in which their posture should be. Um, and, and perhaps even priming the pump for them. You know, yes, this is going to be uncomfortable. Or you may hear some words and phrases that are new to you, but they are not new to the conference uh, planners. And I think that's the other thing is when everything lands on the shoulders of the person on stage or the speaker, the hired gun you've brought in, uh, it is unfair. It is unfair. And I would say it is unwise to expect that one speaker can deliver or carry the message of what you're hoping to achieve. And so what is the commitment of the conference planners and how can they communicate that to their audience? Right. I, we saw it with Sparrow. It was gross. I mean, the conference was around reconciliation. Hello. Mm-hmm. So there, there were many opportunities to model that in the aftermath and to do it publicly, just like they had publicly chosen to wipe account many off their social media, um, what were some of the ways in which they could have done a better job? And, and it's not just on Sparrow. So many other conferences, so many other churches and organizations can do a better job of even the introduction of their speakers and the buy-in that the institution has so that it's not about this one person. When we're 
and I'm talking specifically about conferences because I think that's the topic. So I'm not talking about churches or even some smaller organizations. I'm talking specifically about these national conferences that we get invited to because that's a very specific thing. And what's happening with these national conferences a lot of times is that they're not just doing a one and done, right? They're building a tribe of people. They have a following. Like if you go to their social media, they have people following them. And so I think it, it is important to... Um, prepare the people, even using the social media tools, like, you know, Kathy is on social media, so share her social media so they can check Kathy out beforehand and decide, you know, if they want to listen to Kathy when they get there, or there's that's a session they're going to skip and go out and have coffee with their friends, which is totally fine, right? So they can share Kathy's social media in advance. They can share, you know, uh, we have YouTube clips of us speaking, right? So share one of our YouTube clips. You can do these type of things we try to make the stuff available for free, right? And so people can, you know, really benefit from that. And I think for it's important, I think, when we get there, though, when we talk about prepping an audience, um, because I say stuff, I, I don't talk about race all the time. I mean, I talk about, you know, leadership and mentoring and discipleship. I mean, there, there are several things, or, or justice, right? Um, there are several things that I talk about when I go out. Um, and when I do that, though, I try to shape the conversation all the time and I encourage the organizations and the conference planners to do this, to say to the audience, this is what we are, we are making an investment. When you invite a woman of color, they got to pay, right? And so we're making an investment and we've done this for your spiritual formation. We've done this for your spiritual formation. And so I think it's important to frame the conversation about that because it's not then a us versus them or a political thing. Right. It's just her opinion. It's like, no, no, no. Um, this is something we're doing for, for your spiritual formation. And just a quick example of that. I was at a conference just a few weeks ago. I was leading a pre-conference track on mentoring and discipleship for the kingdom of God. And so I was talking about God's kingdom mission, using a lot of language. And one of the languages I was using was some military language. And so there was a Midianite pastor in the room who was very uncomfortable with me using um, that language. And so you had Christians, about 40 of them from all different types of denominations. And so he was uncomfortable with me using the language, but he was also uncomfortable with some of the languages he, he was hearing in his group from Christians who love Jesus in the other denominations. And so he raised a hand. He wasn't um, combative at all. I didn't feel threatened, you know, just to say that, that this is something that was a concern for him. And so, you know, we had a conversation about it right there in, in front of everyone. And I said to him, I said, that has this been good for you to see how God is working and showing up in other places among other people who love Jesus and love the book and just might be doing things a little bit different or speaking in a way that's different than what you're used to? Have you been stretched and challenged by this in a good way? And the answer was yes. And so I think that's important for us to say to audiences, it's like, we don't always have to agree on things, but right. what's going on here? What is up my blind spot? Um, to a Kennedy's point, why, if you're uncomfortable, why, what is that thing that's making you uncomfortable? Dig deeper to see what's going on here and what do I, you know, need to take before the Lord or take in prayer or talk about with, with my people, my tribe, the people at my church when I go back home. That's really, really important to challenge them in doing, not just, oh, Kathy is a speaker up on stage and I don't like what she has to say. Can we hit on uh, the audience point? Um, I'm curious. We've been talking about conferences. We've been talking about conference organizers. I know a lot of our listeners are not going to fall into that category, but I bet you a lot of them go to conferences. How do audiences communicate support, communicate respect, communicate welcome, and how can maybe we do that better? 
Well, you can sit and listen instead of walking out because you hear something that's uncomfortable. Uh, you can stick around if it's a Q&A, have a question, not a statement, <laughs> not a, you know, not a, I don't have a question. I just have a comment or an observation. No, you have a question. That's what a question and answer session is for. Um, and you can also, uh, find out from folks who are, you know, answering questions about the conference. Is there an opportunity to talk with the speaker after? Is there a meet and greet? Is there a book signing? Or uh, conference directors, um, even churches, right, can throw up someone's social media handle and invite people to have dialogue. And it's much more difficult to do that on Twitter it's much more difficult to do that via email, but sometimes that's what you have to do, right? You, you have to take that or, or you take the questions that you have and you have a dialogue partner, hopefully, someone that uh, was at the conference, someone you know at the church. But showing that kind of respect for a speaker, for me, is understanding the venue that you are in. And I fully expect questions and conversation when that is the understanding of the event. When it is a Q&A, when it is a smaller group, when I am asked uh, to lead a discussion as opposed to uh, sharing content for 20 minutes. But I do expect that if I'm, quite honestly, preaching at chapel or giving a talk at a conference, that is not an opportunity to shout at me from the audience. I just find that disrespectful. And, and it does not escape me that, you know, the two most recent incidences we're talking about were to women of color, right? It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't to men of color. It wasn't to men. It wasn't to white women. It was to two women of color, where audience members thought that they could walk out, which, okay, is their prerogative, but then people are going to notice. Or an audience member decides it's appropriate to interrupt and shout back. That does not communicate respect. Natasha, did you want to chime in? What's she saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit when we were talking about social media. And I thought it was interesting, Natasha, the ways that you were talking about how conferences can use social media at the beginning or not in the beginning, before the conference even starts to kind of raise awareness and call attention to. I'm curious, though, how has social media for you guys changed public speaking? What are the ways that it's made it easier in, in some ways? And what are the things that are like uniquely challenging or more difficult about the nature of the work that you do because of social media? I'm gonna let uh, I'm gonna let you answer this, Kathy. She's pointing at me. We're doing a video conference. I'm gonna let Kathy spend most of the time answering it, and and I'm gonna say that because to me, social media is a much bigger cultural concern than what we're talking about here. And so for me, I don't eat, live, sleep, breathe on social media. I mean, literally, I probably spend I don't know maybe 30 minutes on and off a day on social media. Um, and that's like why I'm eating lunch or standing in line or waiting for somebody who's late at a meeting, you know? And so there are certain things I schedule on social media 
but I don't have time to be on social media. I am not the person that has built a social media platform by having conversations and debates on social media. And some people do that and that's good on them. That's not how I choose to live my life. Um, and so it's very interesting. My, my daughter um, is 11. We had dinner together last night. And we, this is one of the things we're talking about and how, uh, like, I just don't understand why I would invest that much time with strangers. <laughs> so that's just kind of my, my philosophy. So when you ask me kind of how that has helped or hindered, um, I I don't know. I, I really honestly don't pay that much attention to. It. And I think the, the challenge of that is on this business side of things that people um, think that your social media following somehow communicates your worth mm-hmm. or how many books you're going to sell or whatever. And there's really not a direct correlation between, you know, how many people you have following on social media and how well your books sell. Although you can have exposure to more people if you have more social media numbers um, following. So I, so all of it kind of plays together. It goes into the whole platform building thing. But I guess my, my main thing is, is that I think it's important when people are talking about inviting speakers that you are inviting people because of the integrity of their work. Mm-hmm. Because they're popular, not because, you know, it's cool, not because diversity is hip right now and you don't want people to cuss you out on social media because you don't have diversity in your state. <laughs> you need to do it because it's the right thing to do and because you've done your homework and you value the integrity of what the person, who the person is and what they bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think one of the the how it's helped is for me, and I find this for um, folks on the margins, so to speak, right? People of color, mm-hmm. um, you it helps you find other like-minded people, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you and I, Natasha, before we met in person, yes. we were able to follow each other's work and f- find each other and connect that way. And so I'm deeply grateful for the ways in which it has leveled or created a different playing field, so to speak, for me to connect with other other people who are doing this work and other people I want to partner with, other people I want to elevate. And so that's one of the great things that I've enjoyed about social media is the opportunity to partner with other people to elevate and promote other people's work because I have a following on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And to be able to share with folks who follow me, who normally would not be connected uh, to those authors, speakers, whatever. So I I love that. And I think it's changed a lot uh, for me in that respect. I don't, it, it's not, it can be a very solitary thing to be a writer and to be a speaker mm-hmm. um, because your prep is alone with God, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but it also can be lonely. So I think social media has been a wonderful thing to create a community outside of my office. I think what's made it harder is that then it opens uh, up other channels of communication for not just people who want to have a dialogue and ask you about your differing opinions, but to just be outright mean. You know, I have a blog and comments that come from people who have never interacted with me on my blog. Those comments, you know, 
are put on hold until I can go through all of them. And my posture generally has been, I let all comments through that are not vulgar, that are not spam, that are not dangerous or threatening physical harm. Um, But with this last incident with Baylor, I let almost all of those comments through moderation, um, except for three. And those last three, I just decided, you know what, I've already let about 30, 40 comments questioning my mental health, uh, questioning my ability to discern reality, questioning my faith, questioning every bit of my personal integrity. I've let those through. I don't need to let any more of those through, but I think that has been part of the downside to social media. Um, There is a student uh, at Baylor who is backed by um, a university-approved, sanctioned organization. They created a YouTube video, posted it. They named me and put out a challenge, not only to me, but people who agreed with them and with this young man who interrupted me, claiming that this 11-year-old had made terrorist threats, which he did not. and invited people to respond to me. And I think that is the downside to social media is that there were many, many people who call themselves Christians. And I think we're all going to be surprised what happens in the end. Um, Not inviting or asking for dialogue, they were just attacking, just attacking. And I think that for me, as somebody who's doing this public work is the downside. To speak in the context of this conversation about conferences specifically, Mm -hmm. role that social media plays in it, I just want to be clear because I think sometimes people have an illusion of what's happening here. And when you look at the speaking side of things, not just as ministry, which it is, and it is also the business side of things, things which Kathy mentioned before, it's like to some, in some ways, it works like every other business, right? And so you get opportunities and access a lot of times based on relationship and whether or not you're invited to the table just to have a face of color on the website, on the social media platform. So again, so people not cussing you out on Twitter, right? That's different than, oh, I have reached out to Kathy on social media to develop a relationship with her. And so when I get invited to speak or whatever, that Kathy's going to get paid the same thing that I get paid. And when we look around at a lot of these bigger conferences, you will if, just pay attention for a little while. It's not rocket science. This is not very difficult. The same people get invited to the same because they're free. <laughs> like they're inviting their friends and they're paying their friends very well. And them and their friends, they're all selling a lot of books. And so there's no room outside of social media for people like Kathy or myself to get those opportunities because we're not friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that social media does, it does level the playing field. It does create access and opportunity to say, okay, it's great if you want to invite me to that thing. But also for people like us who are saying, you know, we're just kind of tired of waiting for you to figure this out after all of this time and dialogue and conversation and work that we've done. And we're going to partner with other people who are like-minded that care about the things that we care about so we can do some things because you're just not willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. 
I'm again thinking of my brother who's a composer and I think there's a lot of artists that probably could have similar conversations about the value and the danger of social media um, that are probably, you know, saying amen, listening to this. Hopefully they listen into this. Um, because I think there's a double-edged sword to that platform. Like you guys were talking about building a platform as like one of the incentives and sort of both rolling your eyes at that. And I think not only is it not payment, but it's also, it, it you know, it's a double-edged sword. You got both sides and you get that direct attack that's dangerous. And then you also don't always get the connection that like buys access. Um, and so I think that's an interesting facet. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, both Kathy and Natasha, I wanted to return actually to, um, what you were talking about Kathy with, and I wanted to, again, sort of turn the, turn the question around. Um, that's a, the Baylor situation is really awful in a lot of ways. And I wonder if there are, um, examples of ways where that sort of disagreement or dialogue was done in a respectful way in your experience. Natasha, you talked about the, the Mennonite um, pastor, and that was a great example. And the, one of the challenging things in a lot of these complex discussions is what does that look like? Like we have so many bad examples. What does a good example look like? How do we model this? How do we, what do we copy? Um, are there other examples of ways that respectful dialogue or disagreement happened that you felt like that was done well? Oh gosh, I wish I had a bunch to call on off of memory, but I'm having a very difficult time mm -hmm. uh, coming up with any, and in part because there, I, and we, we were kind of joking and you, your listeners can't see it, but Natasha and I are on video. So we're, we're looking at each other kind of laughing. The whole idea of, you know, a conference being called out because their platform is all white, that happens. That happens, and I know it happens because sometimes I'm that person who <laughs> who puts out, you know, the single tweet of like, "Hey, wow, I saw this organization put out their platform," and I was like, "Wow!" And that's that's all that is. Mm -hmm. And um, and I would say that in those instances, what has improved is that because of social media, um, there are ways in which an organization can reach out to people. Right. So even before they mess up, they have access to different viewpoints, people who are not in their circles, people who are, who are one or two degrees separated from their organization. I think that that that's an amazing uh, resource that social media is, is that it, it can extend your reach and it can extend your ability to do research. And know ahead of time, because it is now 2019, and if you are having a national conference, whatever field it is, there is no excuse that it is all white. No excuse at all. Um, but I have found what is helpful then is to have a phone conversation, um, to have people who will go offline and have a very honest conversation with no expectation that there is some sort of public forgiveness from me if I'm the person who tweeted about a conference lineup that was all white. My job is not to fix your PR. <laughs> right? Because you Right. Well, and that's called consulting, exactly. Um, and you can pay me for that. I do that too. So I think that's, that's one of those things where I just don't have a lot of great 
I have a one. Good, good. So um, I, I'm actually speaking this fall at the Apprentice Gathering. This is my second time going to the Apprentice Gathering. Um, James Bryan Smith, he's a published author, white guy. Um, he leads this conference, um, this gathering. And when they invited me for the first time in 2016, um, I had not met James. And so um, they invited me. They paid me, you know, a, a decent rate for um, me, you know, being a first time author and, and just kind of getting started with things. I got there and I had not realized that they had um, they being the school and the institute. They have a fellowship program that's a year long. And so my book, Mentor for Life, was on the required reading list for that fellowship program. So by the time I get to the conference to speak as a keynote speaker and a workshop presenter, several people, both men and women of multiple generations, had already read my book. So I didn't realize that until I got there. So I got there and the audience was already affirming because they were like, oh, my goodness, Ms. I hadn't thought about it in that way. I so appreciate what you wrote thing and so it wasn't me trying to convince anybody or be on the defensive or being feeling even unsafe it's like oh these are my people and I had never met those people but the that's what we talked about earlier about preparing the audience so there was some expectation of this is the person we're bringing and we've already exposed you to them so that when you come and hear Natasha's feet you're not dealing with her for the first time Right. And so I think that was very, very good. And so I was able to do a keynote there. And then there was a very short Q&A after my keynote, not from the audience, but James had already decided on three questions, maybe four that he was going to ask me. Because guess what? As a conference organizer, he read my book before I got there. <laughs> and so he was able to ask me thoughtful question on, questions on stage in front of everyone. So he didn't have to say hey, this is someone I affirm and I think she has great things to say. He, he said, oh, I loved her book. And when I read it, Natasha, these are the things I was thinking about. And because of that, let me ask you these questions. And so it was not just about Natasha or this one 30-minute experience you had with her. This is something this guy had been thinking about for a year. And he let everyone know that. And they came probably because of their reputation um, and their trust of him more so than their knowledge of me right and so that was a very very positive thing so when they emailed me to come back this year I mean it was not even one I had to you know really think about I was like oh this is certainly a place I would love to go again I thoroughly enjoyed the time and they understood that my work and my platform has has grown significantly since we talked in 2016 and and compensated me well for that so um that's a wonderful example of how that looks like. And that's in addition to whatever they're doing on social media there. Like right now, they're putting clips up from my talk from 2016 to prep for a conference that's happening in September. Yeah. And that's maybe a really great additional answer to the, like, how can audiences make conference speakers feel welcome? Is that like, do your homework, you know, like a lot of times you see those, those lineups and you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to go just receive from these people, but maybe you can, you can do a little bit of research and have something to bring. Um, which I think is something actually, Kathy, you mentioned earlier as well. So I'm just repeating yeah, well, I, You know, if you're going to make that investment, and these conferences are not cheap. They're not cheap. So, you know, I think of it as continuing ed. Um, yeah. Those, right, who are in professions where you need to keep going for certification. And I think that that's part of discipleship for us yeah. as Christians, yeah. right? Yeah. That we are learning and that we're not just sitting there receiving 
from the fire hose, but then we are also processing and we're, um, we're pouring into others. And so that is, that's a, there's a mutuality there that I think is important. And folks who attend conferences or do the weekend thing at a church or a retreat is you're making an investment. You are spending time and money. How do you prepare for investments? You do homework, you you do a little research, you enter in trying to make that opportunity the best that it can be, not only for yourself, but also for other participants so that you have great questions instead of an observation or a statement to make. And that was just my one liner on that, is that, you know, if you're looking at this, to my point, as, as spiritual formation, mm-hmm. work that you do to prepare your heart and mind to receive when you get there, the same way you go to church, yeah. right? you're not driving a church arguing with your spouse and you get to church and then acting like you got everything together, right? So you prepare your heart and mind before you enter into a sacred space. And more importantly, if you're going to invest in that space, the hope is that you're not just getting stuff in that space and you're not going to take back what you've gotten in that space to your community, to your local church, to your family and your friends or whatever. And if you're not willing to do that work to to, you know, in advance, and you're certainly not going to do the work on the back end. And so I think right. it's important to set that expectation and standard up. You know, when you come here, yes, we want you to have a good time. We want you to meet new people. We want you to engage with new ideas and to take that extra step of how you're going to challenge yourself. And this is a challenge with this diversity thing. People think it's good enough just to show up for the conversation. It's not. You have to go and do the work. So you guys have given so many just extremely interesting ideas and suggestions, super concrete ones. I know that um, one trap that people fall into is thinking that some of this change is just not going to cost them anything or require any sacrifice or or be anything difficult, you know, kind of that much more challenging than the status quo is. But obviously to break out of the status quo, it always takes time, energy, resources, sacrifice. So I guess the question that I would want to just kind of ask you guys as we wrap is like in order to really like support, sustain, encourage, boost um, the Christian women of color, these conferences are inviting. What do these conferences have to give up in order to make that a reality? <laughs> it's a whole nother podcast. So I'll yeah. just boost your books at this point. No. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to elaborate on it too much, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is a, uh, conversation about about power and privilege Mm -hmm. is a conversation about power and privilege because you know you have two women of color on this podcast because this is not you know white men aren't having this problem (laughs) right like like generally and not to say it never happens but if you had a guy a, a white male in particular speaking at chapel at a university people don't stand up and yell at him yep Right? And so that, I mean, it's just a very basic thing. And so it's like, what can we do? It's like, okay, well, let's have a conversation and not together and, and with us as people of color necessarily, but with yourself, with your team, what what ways, this is very important. I, I'm taking an executive director course right now. And we were talking about the power of influence. This is last week, um, a leadership class about influence. And so I was using this example um, about why, uh, you know, people need to get, fairly in these types of spaces. And I said to them, to my class, I said, what's what's fair to them is not equitable to me, 
right? What's fair to them is not equitable to me. So they said, we pay everybody $500. That's fine. But I'm, I'm, you know, for me, like, I don't have a full-time job. I have a child at home. You know, I have a husband who travels. You know, um, I have two nonprofits I'm, I'm financially supporting with my time and money. So just because that's what you pay everyone, as a woman of color, number one, it costs me more emotionally and spiritually to show up in a, in a predominantly white space where I'm one of only or one of a baby as a stranger. You know, and I say a stranger, not that I don't want relationship, but if I don't have personal relationship yet, right? It costs me more spiritually and it costs me more um, emotionally to, to do that. And then again, all those things I'm giving up to be in that space, right? And if I have to pay out childcare and do logistics and all that, that's in addition to praying and studying and doing research and preparing my talk, like that has to, that value has to show up in what you're offering for income. And so you the thought process of what is fair, that's the easy thing. The conversation really needs to be, if we want to be you know, people that care about justice, what's equitable for a woman of color when you're asking us to come and do this work? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's an issue of power. It's an issue of power. So on the very like easy end of it, if you're looking at attending any kind of conference, you know what? Click on the conference page. And click on and find out the leadership. Who are the leaders? And dig one level deeper. Not just, you know, your board of directors, but who are the decision makers? Who's the visionary? Who's the president? Who's the founder of this? Um, and, and therein you will see some of those friendships and connections between conferences and friendships and who gets invited and all that crazy stuff. I, I think that that's what, you can do any listener can do um it doesn't it's not rocket science it really isn't it's like three clicks that's all it takes three clicks and you'll you'll see who's got the power and and why is it that natasha and i are the ones talking about this right it we're not we don't have our own conferences and that's not something necessarily that i'm aspiring to but uh i i guarantee you Two male speakers, one who came before me and one who came after me at Baylor, said things that students did not agree with, and neither of them were challenged publicly. Neither of them had someone stand up and yell back at them. Neither of them had a video created calling them out and inviting others to, you know, get on their websites and call them out. Neither of them. So there's there is a cost, and if organizations, institutions are committed to this work of kingdom diversity, the beauty of God's kingdom fully, holy, that has to happen not just on stage. It can't, and we know it. We're watching. Well, thank you guys both for all the really extremely rich discussion and stuff to think about here. Caleb and I have been passing notes i know you guys are like looking at each other we're passing notes about like that was really good mm -hmm. so i do wish you could see us it would be nice to be able to wave <laughs> and like wink <laughs> <laughs> um but for people who do have feedback send us your feedback um you can send us an email <laughs> yes Exactly. We'll pass it on if we feel like it. <laughs> it might get through that moderation. <laughs> you can do that. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And we do appreciate hearing from everyone. We'll say for the most part, the feedback that we get is extremely thoughtful. So thank you for everyone who really 
works to be thoughtful in how they do that and yes. a challenge for you to continue to do that in everyone that you're addressing and talking to um, and not just the quote unquote, the institutions you already feel like you respect or deserve it. And see if you can practice doing that for the people that respond knee jerk, the people that just are attacking. If you can respond with respect there, just a little challenge for you. Yes. So listeners, sorry to lecture you this week, but hey, that's what you signed up for. All right. So before we move on to our next segment, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Again, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. I didn't say that correctly. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. This is Holy Week this week, and we have a couple articles in our current April issue that are looking at the themes of Holy Week, including a couple that Caleb, our theology editor, edited, um, which is one that you were thinking of, Caleb. Yeah. So we have a piece by Kelly Kabik here. Um, It's titled, Is the Cross Enough? Ooh, interesting title. Um, And he's basically just like unpacking, like, where is the center of the gospel? Um, I think a lot of us assume it's the cross, and I don't think that's a bad assumption, but he wants to open that up a little more. Um, and so I really would encourage you to read that. It's fantastic. It's on our website. You can also subscribe for the print magazine. Um, the design is also beautiful. And I think it's a really good reflection right at this time in the church year, whether you celebrate Holy Week in its full liturgical fullness or whether you just are going to show up on Easter and enjoy um, a Sunday just like every other Sunday where we're celebrating the, the resurrection of Christ. It's a great reflection, and I would really encourage you to read it. All right. So again, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. It is now time for Precious Moments. That's when everyone on the show gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Caleb, I would love it if you could go first for this. So this past Sunday uh, was Palm Sunday, um, and I help lead worship occasionally at my church, and I was just helping this Sunday. But for a variety of reasons, I got stuck um, leading a number of different worship songs, and uh, I did not get a lot of sleep um, Saturday night. And uh, I had some bad news earlier in the weekend and um, just a lot of complex stuff I was thinking about. And I was not ready to lead worship. I did not want to be the person in front because it's supposed to be celebration. It's supposed to be exciting and happy. It's Palm Sunday. And I was just not there. Um, And I had some uh, very dear friends pray for me uh, before the service and between services and afterwards. Um, and, uh, the church really responded and God met me. And I, I don't often see it that clearly where I did not have the energy. Um, I did not have what it took, but God showed up and I got through that. Um, and he kind of carried me through that. And mostly he carried it in the church. I could see them just worshiping in an incredible way that I have not seen at a Palm Sunday, um, in our church in maybe ever. Um, and so, that was just really incredible to watch. I don't want to over-spiritualize too much, but I was just very blessed by that experience. Um, it was very much not me, and that was incredible. So thanks, God. It was great. All um, right. And if people want to give you thoughtful responses about your work, they can do so. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, C. Adams Lindgren. That's C-A-A-D-M. A-M-S-L-I-N-D-G-R-E-N. I can spell my own name, I promise. Uh, I don't tweet a lot. Um, I'm more in the Natasha camp. Um, I kind of, every once in a while. Um, but you can follow me if you'd like to, and then also um, subscribe to CT and uh, read the stuff we, we, we put out. 
Awesome. Who wants to go first now? Or second, I guess. <laughs> I don't have anything all that deep. Um, I, <laughs> I got a lot of joy for um, having dinner with my daughter last night. Um, and particularly this Saturday as well. She's in uh, my nonprofit. We have a mentoring program. We call it the Lynx Mentoring Program. And so I have her... My daughter and several, um, most of the girls are African-American and we're teaching them about the Nicene Creed and um, going over some stories about women who are leading because that's what we do. I mean, I know I'm So some of them are reading Hidden Figures. Some of them are reading Seven Women. And so we're, we do that and, you know, just give them opportunity to practice some of the things that we, we're, we're doing. And so... Um, I get a lot of joy in seeing them uh, joyful, um, seeing the sisterhood grow between them, um, seeing their curiosity, uh, them asking so many questions about life and thinking deeply about things. Um, and for the privilege I have to let them know that they are known and loved and to affirm their identity and their beauty. Can you remind people the name of your book and also what your website is? Yes. So my latest book is A Sojourner's Truth, A Sojourner's Truth, like Sojourner Truth, the activist, look her up. And then uh, first book is Mentor for Life, Finding Purpose Through Intentional Discipleship, because women of color write about more things than race. So that's important. Discipleship and leadership, I also write about. So you can look that up on my website as well. My website is Natasha S as in Sam, Natasha S. Robinson.com. You can find all of my social media things there, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, um, my blog. And I also have a podcast, a Sojourner's Truth podcast, and that's on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. So this season we are wrapping up is on mentoring. Awesome. All right, Kathy, you ready to go? Sure. So uh, we just finalized plans this morning, actually, for a family vacation. So uh, I'm maybe new to listeners out there. I have three children. One is a grown adult. (laughs) (laughs) Who lives... Hey, grown or grown-ish? Like grown, grown grown-ish, but mostly grown. I mean, I would would say mostly grown um, out in New York and then a son who's in college and then a high schooler. And so we cannot assume that schedules are going to line up. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I have been saving, this brings me great joy. I have been saving my frequent flyer miles for years. Oh my gosh, Kathy. Okay. Years. And it's still really tricky because there's just, I, I don't, travel enough to accumulate enough miles to actually get us like overseas somewhere. And um, so I just based on miles, except one leg for our daughter who's flying in and out um, from her home, uh, we have managed to drain my account to, I think like 7,000 miles. now. <laughs> but we're going to fly out on miles um, for a week away as a family of five. And actually what brings me the deepest joy is that the kids, the two boys are always asking if their older sister is coming. Even though she's moved out, they want to know if Nuna, older sister in Korean, is Nuna coming. And so that brings me um, the deepest joy is that for them, it doesn't feel like a family vacation if she doesn't come. And um, so 
I, I'm, I'm terribly exciting. We're just going to all be so hot, but it won't matter because we will sweat together. Where are you, go- where are you going? We're going to go to the desert. <laughs> <laughs> <There's> some- <laughs> Natasha, you're <laughs> fine. We're going to, we're going to be in a beautiful desert. And the plan is to go very early in the morning and see sites like the Joshua tree national park. Mm. And, um, and they're all three are really excited about that, which is also amazing. They're thrilled. I'm thrilled. And I just said, yeah, we'll go early in the morning. And then in the evenings, afternoons, we'll just sit by a pool. (laughs) I like how bad could that be? Right. So it'll be fine. Report back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, Kathy, you have a book and website, I believe. Yeah. So the book is called Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And you can find that um, at uh, order it from your local bookstore. And Mm -hmm. um, my website is my name, kathykong.com, K-H-A-N-G.com. And then you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at Ms. M-S. Kathy Kong. All right. My precious moment is last night I got to meet up with some people who I'm wondering actually if you know, Kathy, have you ever heard of Stir Friday Night? Yes. Okay. So if you haven't heard of Stir Friday Night, it is an Asian American improv group um, that's based in Chicago. Anyway, so we got to meet up with them. Some people know that I'm in this Asian American group and we are our group met up with their group and then we got to see them do a show and the group has actually been around for I think like 25 years did you yes. know that Kathy wow yes but I've taken the family to see them so on purpose because I want my kids to be able to see people who look like them doing things like improv it was also really cool talking to them too because they all shared with about like other stuff that they're working on, right? So there's people doing sketch, mm-hmm. there's people coming up with scripts, multiple people doing web series. Someone was in a movie recently. Someone filmed a commercial. Yeah. Maybe um, so- doing anything boring like <laughs> spreadsheets. Really? Yeah. Right. No. I mean, some of them have day jobs too, but it was really just fun talking to other creatives who are you know out there trying to make it work and um, also part of this group called Stir Friday Night and they were they comped us tickets to the show at Improv Olympic slash IO which most people know as IO um, and we so we got to see them perform later on and they were great so anyway if you want to look them more it's Stir Friday Night and they were great and really welcoming to all of us and people can find me on Twitter I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to yet another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, our magazine. You can become a subscriber by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps. And if you want to leave a review for the show, we have given you so many instructions about how to leave good reviews um so follow those instructions and you can do that by going to apple podcasts and doing it on the quick to listen page we will see you all next week bye today's episode of quick to listen is brought to you in part by bloodline everything christ suffered on the cross was for you In Bloodline, Skip Heitzig takes you on a journey to discover the overwhelming truth of Scripture. God loves you. The cross proves how much. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com.